Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. Yes, I will definitely take it from there. Welcome, KickServeRadio.com. Andy Zoden, and we are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, the KickServeRadio.com team consists of our resident seven-time Grand Slam champion and former number one in the world, Matt Spielander. He resides in Haley, Idaho, where he is the owner of Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And Matt's always great to see you and talk to you. How are you doing? And I'm doing excellent. I'm uh, extremely excited uh, these days because obviously uh, the big U.S. Open tournament uh, has just started, and I can't wait to see some real good tennis. It is that time of year, and we're also joined by Johnny Levine. He is the former two-time All-American from the University of Texas, my former teammate. And uh, Johnny, tonight it's it's last one to get her done, and that is in honor of Andy Roddick, who is the last American to win a major championship when he won the U.S. Open back in 2003. And although our best days are behind us, uh, having been in Austin, Texas, as, as, as college guys, and in my case, uh, as a young pro at Lakeway, where Andy started playing tennis as a youngster, and his older brother, uh, John, did as well, it's kind of good to know that although we're gone, we've got Andy Roddick and Austin holding the fort for us, isn't it? We love that Andy Roddick has got Austin in his blood, and... Um... We've been excited to see you, Andy, on uh, the Tennis Channel quite a bit. You've kind of come out of the woodwork here, and uh, we're finally getting to, to, to hear you talk, and it's been really fun to watch you and, and, and listen to you. I, I guess they needed someone to cover crappy YouTube videos when there, were no, uh, when there was no live tennis, so I guess I was that guy. <laughs> well, far from it, Andy Roddick, winner of 32 titles on tour, won 74% of his matches going 612 and 213, as we mentioned, won a U.S. Open, three Wimbledon finals, three trips to the semis at the Aussie Open, won the Davis Cup in 2007. I believe it was in Portland, Oregon, when he teamed with James Blake and the recently retired Brian Brothers. Andy, welcome to KickServeRadio.com. It's so great to see you and to chat with you. Guys, I'm happy to be on. So let me ask you this to start with, Andy. We're talking about the thought of not just sports with no fans, but obviously tennis with no fans. I can't imagine a bigger contrast in the sport of tennis than the difference between playing a match without fans versus a night match at the U.S. Open. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it's been a little awkward watching watching the tennis. Um, you, you know, there's no, there's no momentum. You're not seeing maybe not as much of the nerves in play. I, specifically, there was a match – uh, I remember I was watching last week with uh, with uh, Sophia Kennan, and she got beat first round. And she was uh, I, I, I forget who she was playing, but she got she was getting beat badly. Kind of it was one of those awkward second sets where she came back, maybe fought something off at five two five three, really kind of turned the tide of the match. And I feel had there been in a crowd, had there been, it would have been a complete momentum shift. So 
I think it's actually a big equalizer against kind of the, the higher ranked players because they're used to dealing with fans. They're used to dealing with kind of high pressure situations with, with witnesses, right? So playing, uh, you know, Novak or, or Dominic team or someone uh, in, in a big stadium uh, without people, I, I got to think it's an easier proposition uh, for a low ranked player than, than, than maybe it would be normally. Andy, what, I mean, it's so interesting, but what, what do you think it is that we, were, we will find out? If, if you look at uh, somebody like uh, a Jimmy Connors or Leighton Hewitt, I practiced with Jimmy quite a bit, uh, and uh, I, it didn't seem like he cared if anyone was watching. He wanted to kick my butt in practice in any situation. Yeah. So even from the top players, I mean, is this a situation where we will find out something that we didn't know about them before do they love tennis to the point where they don't care if there's a crowd or uh the andy murray of the world is he better off if there's no crowd there what 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 we will find out from the top players doing the open you reckon well i I think uh the the players you mentioned you know guys like yourself uh you know kind of the best competitors that that uh that our sport has seen i I don't think it's going to be as big of a deal um i I don't think novak's going to be phased by it i think it's going to be an equalizer normally I had a theory when, and Andy, you mentioned going out Arthur Ashe at night, and I don't think there's anything kind of like that. It's, it's, it's almost an event more than a tennis match uh, in, in, that, in that arena. And I always felt like I was going to get someone who was playing over their skis or, I, or someone who was just going to be completely overawed by the moment. I rarely got the guy who was 30 in the world playing like he was 30 in the world. Um, and, and I think you're probably going to see maybe a, a, a revert to kind of normalcy, which I think is a huge equalizer. But I, I think the biggest thing is who's been training and who's going to be in shape to play five setters. You know, normally a lot of guys use the actual tournaments for match shape. We're going to see who is actually putting in the yards during the offseason. I think it's a different scenario playing two out of three sets and uh, a not Cincinnati, you know, uh, kind of a fake Cincinnati event than it is, uh, you know, in an actual Grand Slam with some heat and uh, with, with kind of longer matches. If you were on the tour right now, let's say you were playing right now and, and you were in this situation with no fans – can you give us a, an idea of what it would have been like for you in this situation? Um, I, I, I feel like I try, especially in New York, I feel like I could use the crowd strategically. You know, a lot of people use the crowd in, in their good moments, right? They hit a great shot and they, they try to pump up the crowd and, you know, kind of use their arms and get them going. Use it in the bad moments, right? Like when, when something goes wrong, get them into it. At least change the dynamic, change the, 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 the flow a little bit. But Listen, I, I had a I had a lot of uh, a lot of weaknesses as a tennis player, but I I, I kind of thought I was one of the guys who, regardless of circumstance, I I would I would pack my lunch, kind of try to put on my hard hat and and go put in an honest day's work uh, most times. So um, I, I'd like to think that the product would be would be similar, minus the fact that I might be able to control uh, the atmosphere a little bit. But as far as like what I was putting out, um, I feel like it would be similar. But what I was able to kind of affect with the other person might be a little bit different. Andy, when we bring Hall of Famers like yourself on the show, we always try – It doesn't. we don't have to try very hard, but we do try to find some connectivity to Matt's V-Lander. And, and I thought about it, and it was pretty interesting what I came up with. You know, Matt's won the Open in 88, becomes the number one player in the world. And the following year, he kind of gets disappointed and upset by Pete Sampras. You, on the other hand, play Pete Sampras in 2002, get beat by Pete in 02, as memory serves, and then a year later – you win the U.S. Open. You become the number one player in the world. Take us from that match in 02 against Pete and maybe what you learned and what made you think you would be the favorite going in in 03. How much growing up did you do in a year? Yeah, so uh, the, the, the match with, with Pete was interesting because we think of Pete and we think of 
you know, it, it's funny when you kind of look in the rearview mirror, you, you, you look at the entirety of a career, right? So Matt's will forever be Matt's. We won't remember the years that he struggled, right? We'll, we'll just remember the, the, the victories and Pete will remember, you know, the 14 grand slam titles, but in 02, it was a bit of a different story, you know, and, and he had, we forget he had lost to George Bastel at Wimbledon. He had kind of limped his way through the summer. It was actually a surprise that, and I say this very humbly, like it was a surprise that Pete was in the quarters at, at, at that event. He had kind of found a little bit of a rush of blood, had beaten Rusetsky, I think Haas. And so I actually felt going in, I'd played him twice up to that point, uh, And it was still very early in my career and I'd won both times. Um, a lot of what I did kind of matched up decently against Pete. And for me, that was the realization of the best players in the big moment being very, very different versions of, of themselves in, in the best way possible. So playing Pete at Miami and playing Pete in a, in a Houston clay court final was not the same as playing Pete when he was on form at a U.S. Open. So I left that going, oh, okay. So there's, 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 uh, there, there, there's definitely circumstantial differences with, uh, with the guys who are, are the best of all time. And then, you know, to kind of play it forward in 03, I don't know how much connectivity there was between the 02 match with Pete. It was over so quick. I, you know, I, I just, you know, frankly, sometimes you just go out and you just get blitzed. And that, that was one of those matches. And 03, I finished that year number one. But for that kind of six-week stretch going into the Open in the Open, that was probably the only time in my career where I could honestly look in the mirror with no one else around and say, I, I think I'm the best player right now. Uh, on, on the planet. But the, the, the weird thing about that Open is, and my most kind of stressful point, wasn't really the matches once I got going, was that summer I played well. I won Cincy uh, in Montreal and won Indy. The only match I lost that summer was to Tim Henman. And the draw comes out, and he was coming back from, I think, an injury or something, but he was still a you know, great player, knew what he was doing, was never going to make real bad decisions, was going to you know, make you hit passing shots and make you beat him. Draw comes out for the U.S. Open, and I have to play Tim Henman first round. So in my, my mind, I'm going, oh, my gosh, you have this amazing summer. You know, it's, it's all primed. You're playing better than anyone. But there's this matchup that you don't like, really, and he can chip your serve back and get a lot of balls in play. And uh, so I remember that being like a huge stress point. So my – my lack of sleep didn't come the night before the final. It came when the draw came out on like Tuesday or Wednesday. And I had to think about that matchup for four days going in. I remember being pretty stressed out about that. So Andy, try to um, explain to me a little bit what you went through as a tennis player. So you win the U.S. Open uh, as a very young man. I'm assuming you think you were a better tennis player sort of a few years after that, five, six, seven, eight years I mean, I surely was a, a lot better what, five years after I won my first major. So I'm assuming that happened to you too. What was it, do you think, that made you want to develop as a tennis player rather than sticking to the tactics that you used for winning the U.S. Open? You look like, to me, you, you loved to play tennis rather than maybe the first Andy Roddick was a little wilder somehow than the one we got to know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's an accurate assessment. I think it was I think it was circumstantial change. And I think a lot of times when people are uh, commenting on tennis or digesting it from the outside, it's simple. It's, you know, hit, you know, you have the forehand hit as hard as you can. And, you know, that's the way you should kind of. Uh, but but for me, it was it was two things. It was obviously like the, the, the Roger of things and him becoming him basically just improving. So I was no worse in 05 than I was in 03. And I was playing a very similar game. But my kind of uh, projection was. Uh, you know, 03, 1, 04, 2, 05, 3, 06, I think I was six. And, but those four years playing very similar. 
07, it was somewhere around there. I, I forget, it was six, maybe 08, I, I finished eight. And then I kind of had to sit back and take a hard look at myself because I'm going, you know, I, I, I didn't go to much school, but if you put those, those rankings on a graph, they're going the wrong way, right? <laughs> and, and so I, I think a lot of it was circumstantial. A lot of it was kind of the, uh, the birth of, of this generation who are frankly just way better tennis players than, than, than I ever was. But also just the, the, the slowing of the courts. And so whereas I could play first strike tennis in 01, 02, or 3, 04, uh, that became less of an option and a less effective option later on, let's say, you know, six, seven, and, and eight. Uh, so it's basically, do I keep treading water and have an ego about what used to work and what was successful for me and what got me to number one? Or do I actually, you know, check my ego at the door and actually adjust and learn how to actually play tennis and move? Larry Stefanke came on and I had asked him to be my coach. He said, listen, I'm not going to come down and start working with you until you drop 15 pounds so you can actually move like a top player is supposed to move. And kind of by virtue of that, I, I you know, a lot of times it was presented as a negative, but I don't think I had, you know, would have had a shot at the basket in, at Wimbledon in 09, which wasn't fast. I don't think that I would have uh, put myself back in position to win Master Series titles uh, had, I not, had I not actually made that transition. I know it was fascinating because we always kind of live uh, w- with a nostalgic take on what was. But for me, it was, it was actually very intentional. And I think it was circumstantial based on uh, the, the way the game kind of slowed down, um, whether it was surface or whether it was balls. Um, so the, the, the trajectory is pretty obvious to me. I was surprised that it wasn't as obvious to, to everyone else. And so it, it was a pretty deliberate play that I took a lot of criticism for. But ultimately, I don't think I would have had a chance to win Wimbledon in 09 had I not made those changes. I went through in my career, and I'm sure Andy uh, Roddick, you don't, you don't quite know that, but uh, I was one of the most boring baseliners that the world had ever seen in 1982. And then you started coming in more. That's exactly my question. So I decided that in 1987, I was so sick of losing to Ivan Lendl. Sorry, I wasn't sick of losing to him. I wanted to make the match look differently. So I started slicing my backhand. I came into the net and, uh, and I obviously beat Lendl in the US Open Final 88, coming in more than 100 times. So I had a great time playing that style. I had my best year by far in 1988. Comes 1989, comes around. And I'm still trying to chip the ball with my backhand and come in and serve and volley. But this is not a natural game to me, right? I'm not feeling it. I know that it's the only way I can win, but I'm not having that much fun. I'm like, I want to I wanna fight from the baseline. I want to hit topspin. So I lost the motivation. My question to you, how difficult is it for a player to play with the same intensity, the game that everybody else thinks? And you also, you know this is what I need to do to win but I'm not loving this. I need to love what I do. And then I'll be two, three, four in the world instead. What do you, how difficult is that for players? For me, it was, it, it, I don't know. I, I don't think it was, it was a matter of joy. I, 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 I kind of loved what I did every day. I, I kind of, you know, enjoyed it. And I, I was pretty impetuous and I was, I was a victim of the moment sometimes, but Overall, I don't think I was miserable because I was, I was actually a small kid until I got big, and then all of a sudden I could serve 140, and that changed the way the points came to me, right? So instead of you know, playing more like you did in 82, which I did when I was like an undersized kid, all of a sudden I could serve, and so I was getting short returns. And so for, for me, it was the, 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 the natural way to play was probably similar to you, but all of a sudden I grew into a serve, and the points just presented themselves uh, a, a lot differently. 
once I actually kind of slimmed down and made the physical change, which was the tough part, kind of cycling back in and, and, and working on footwork and stuff that actually felt a little bit more, more natural to me. The stressful part for me was, okay, I was going to have to change up my game, actually play more aggressive against Roger. Uh, you know, he knew and everyone knew I couldn't hit top spin on the back end. So he could just lay that chip down and I either had to come in on something average or I had to shovel it back and start over. Neither of which was, was a good option. So the, the, the prospect of, of having to play a very awkward game plan for myself and execute at a hundred percent over the course of four or five hours. And by the time I played Roger, most times it was semis or finals. So he was dialed in. Uh, that was the hardest, that was the, the, the biggest stress point for me that caused me a lot of frustration. The actual, you know, process of changing, I actually in, enjoyed that. It was just a matchup against Roger that I knew what was going to happen. We played the same point for a decade and I won 48% of the points. Andy, you know, you came at a time that uh, American tennis really needed someone like yourself. Um, I'm curious to know, looking back at, at your results, winning the Open, winning the Davis Cup, where does that Davis Cup stand? Because, I mean, it was so long. It's been, it had been 12 years since since U.S. had won the Davis Cup. We had always had such great success. And and to me, I, I, I took such pride in, in that victory for you guys. And it still stands as, as the last victory that we've had as, as a Davis Cup for the U.S. Where does that stand for you? Because to me, it's just it's an incredible thing that you guys won that with McEnroe as the captain. It, it was huge for us because – you know, I, I didn't play college tennis. I was, you know, especially early on in my career, I was a bit of a, uh, a bit of a lone wolf. I, 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 you know, admittedly probably rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And, you know, the, the, my teammates on that team became my uh, social infrastructure on the tour. Um, they became uh, a, a source of comfort for me. So even away from Davis Cup weeks, you know, James and Marty are still lifelong friends of mine. Uh, you know, Bob and Mike and I will, you know, we'll always have uh, a bond but we we got to the, the the finals and we were always right there but we just couldn't do it so uh when we finally got there it felt like it was maybe more of a process to get there than than uh maybe some of the uh earlier victories in, in my career and it was um it, it was fantastic I I kind of hate to see what what Davis Cup has now become because you know at a, at a certain time it was right up there with with uh, with slam titles, as far as you know, the, the joy that someone would feel when uh, when they won it, and you know, to me, and, and this is probably a bit off topic, but to me, it's a bit of a disappointment that you know the, the powers that be that had Davis Cup had this fantastic entity for so long just refused to adjust and refused to change. Therefore, they lost uh, a, a huge part of their market share, which has forced them into this kind of awkward you know thing that it is now which, you know, it's, it's imperfect. Um, whereas I feel had they at least been a little nuanced and, and not just, uh, you know, say, well, this is the way it's always been. So this is the way we're going to do it. If any other industry treated a, uh, an asset like that, uh, you know, we'd also be going to Blockbuster for videos. So um, it, it was, it, it was, uh, it was, it was phenomenal. I loved it. Davis cup was a highlight of my career and uh, it, it makes me sad that it's, it's, it's not kind of the, the, the same and you don't get those away ties in front of the rowdy crowds where you're going in and trying to be the guy who, uh, who shot Bambi. Well, you definitely shot Bambi a number of times, Andy, and it was, it was a, a Davis Cup title in 07, uh, a U.S. Open title in 2003, 32 singles titles. You won the doubles at Indian Wells. Let's throw that in. And that ended up to a Hall of Fame career. And if there was a Hall of Fame, for Hall of Fame speeches, 
I think yours is in on the first ballot. And and what you and I do have in common is that we both like to talk a lot about sports aside from just tennis. And your Hall of Fame speech was indicative of that. I guarded Michael Jordan. I pitched to Babe Ruth. I went the distance with Muhammad Ali. I think Picasso even got a mention. Was that all you or did you have a little bit of help with that? Because that thing was epic. <laughs> so I, I did it the night before. Um the two things that I, that I wanted to do was not talk about any specific tournaments or matches because I, I, I just, at that point, I just don't feel like that matters. Um, you know, when you're, and especially like, and I'm, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not fishing here. And I, I, I believe this. Um, I, I, I don't know that I should have gotten in when I got in. I, I, I you know, I, I, I had the resume that maybe could have gotten me in eventually, but I, I felt like it was premature. I was a little intimidated by that. So the last thing I was going to do was grandstand on a career that was great to a lot of people, but considering the room you're in at the Hall of Fame was probably less than 99% of the people that are, that are in there. So I didn't want to talk about specific matches. What was important to me was drawing a line between the eight or nine-year-old version of myself that, that watched Mats and that you know, kind of idolized the, the, the American guys to the reality of the fact that now I can talk to them. And, you know, I formed relationships with my idols and, you know, the matches that inspired me. Um, and, and also number two was just the people that help you along the way that no one knows their name, right. That are just as important in your career that are with you in all the, the crappy moments and um, was, was to kind of pay homage to, to, to those people as well. And kind of just tell a story like, you know, and I'd be curious to hear Matt's take on this because I, I feel like with the stories I hear, and I don't know if this is just sensationalized for, for, for the sake of a story, but like I really appreciated the guys I was playing with while I played them. Like I genuinely liked Roger while I was playing him. I genuinely liked Rafa when I was playing him. Um, I didn't have that kind of animosity towards the guys. Um, and that probably says a lot more about, about them than it does about me. But um, I wanted to get that across that even though my record against them was, was, was subpar at best, I still appreciated the moments. Um, you know, even when I'm getting whacked by Roger for the 24th time, there was still something special about seeing what he was doing. And, uh, you know, a lot of the times I had, a, I had the closest seat you can get. Our guest today is one of the great American players of all time, the most recent American male to win a major championship singles title. He is the great Andy Roddick. And Andy, I certainly appreciate your humility and I appreciate your perspective. But the fact of the matter is you carried the men's game for the United States on your back by yourself for better than a decade. You won a major championship. You got to number one in the world. You led the United States to a Davis Cup title in 2007. As far as I'm concerned, you do belong in the Hall of Fame. And anybody that saw your career should feel the same way and does feel the same way. So I think that certainly everybody on this show and most American tennis fans and fans across the world, I think are in agreement that Andy Roddick, however you slice it, is absolutely a Hall of Famer. I, uh, I appreciate you, and I, I, I thank you. Uh, I don't agree with you, but, <laughs> okay. I'm sure I, but, but, I, but, I, but I sure as hell ain't giving it back. I promise you that. But you know what, Andy? You didn't agree with me when I told you that when I gave you that Longhorn hat in 2003, when Philip Farmer took me into your hotel room and introduced us, you didn't think that had anything to do with you winning the U.S. Open. And then when I interviewed you on the floor of the Pepsi Center, I gave you another hat that night, and you won 
that title as well at the Power Shares. So we've been around each other twice. I've given you hats both times. You've won titles. You, you have to wonder what could have been had you taken me on tour, how many more majors there could have been. Well, what, what, um, what, 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 where my mind went when you were saying that is that you're probably just a dick for not giving me more hats. <laughs> well, I've got one here. Let me see if I can find one. <laughs> I, think we're, I, think, I, think, I think we're a day late and a dollar short now. But Here's know. an Arizona Tennis Classic hat for you. I know Johnny would love seeing me hold this thing up, and then you come out and win that thing. All that'll, all that'll get me now is like a victory against my five-year-old son in Candyland. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's done for me now. Matt, what do you got? I would have to say that uh, on, the, on Andy's, on your question here about liking the players that I played against, um, I find that I have a really good relationship with, with all the players that I played because I think, um, I don't think they felt very threatened by me as a personality or maybe not even as a player. But I have to say, it was not easy to be best friends with, with uh, John McEnroe, or Jimmy Connors, nor Ivan Landel. I mean, it was very tough to get into to, uh, their circle of friends. And uh, I think you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, when you got in uh, big time. I have one question for you because I'm feeling it. My passion for the game, Andy, is changing. Every single week it's changing. And now I love teaching six-year-old tennis. Are you surprised uh, over your passion for the game? And is it, a, is it shifting all the time? Like you love to talk about it before you love to practice and you love to win. Where is your passion uh, for tennis, do you think, in your own mind? I would love to say it, 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 it matches yours, but I'm not about to get in, in, a, in a van and drive around the country to teach it. And I admire you for that. And I wish it – maybe if I had had that passion, I would have your, your, your career stats also. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have much to do with it now. Um, the, 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 the tennis channel has been really fun. But, you know, if we're, if we're, if we're being honest, it's because it can happen remotely right now. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but – you know, my, my life has gone in a very, very uh, different direction since tennis. I, I, I don't really go to tournaments. I'm not around it consistently. Um, I love it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for it. There, I don't have, like I read Andre's book, I don't, I don't have any animosity towards it uh, in that way. It's not a Pete where I'm in, indifferent about it at this point. I, I love it. But, uh, you know, there, there have just been, been other interests in a, a, a post-career. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always pretty curious. So my, my life has taken on, uh, you know, it's, it's gone in different directions that I, I probably wouldn't have seen um, or, or predicted uh, for my post career. I, I love it. I love the innocent parts of tennis. I still go out and, and enjoy hitting balls. I don't I don't do it that often. Um, but I, I'm, I'm thankful for it. I owe everything I have to, to the to the game of tennis. And that's that's never in question. He is the great Andy Roddick, winner of 32 titles on tour, winner of 612 singles matches, a U.S. Open, a Davis Cup, and just a lot of great moments, a lot of entertaining moments for all of us, both on and off the court. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on KickServeRadio.com tonight. It's been a real treat for us. I always love catching up with you. I said it before, and I'll say it again. Having been back in Austin in the old days and watching you you and your brother come up as as kids and to see what both of you have done in our sport, I'm very proud of you and uh, and very happy for you and, and really pleased to have you on with us tonight. I enjoyed it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for letting me chat about tennis a little bit. Thank you so much, Andy. How often do we hear news stories about tech giants violating and restricting access to ideas and philosophies that they don't agree with? That's why you should choose SquadPod. 
SquadPod is a private communication team. It is a collaboration platform for businesses, schools, nonprofits, and athletes. SquadPod has all the important features of other communication, chat, and video apps, but it's 100% unique in its commitment to protecting your privacy and your business. SquadPod doesn't monitor or censor any of your conversations. They don't create customer profiles or use any of your content for AI training or facial recognition. They don't sell or share any of your information with anyone. SquadPod is 100% made, stored, and operated in the United States. So join us and visit squadpod.com forward slash kickserve to learn much more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And welcome to Tennis Across America. This is our new feature where we're talking to tennis players and tennis pros all across the United States. And of course, tonight we're celebrating Andy Roddick and talking a little bit about the Bryan brothers. But now we go to Oklahoma City and we're joined by my good friend, Angie Kamara. She is the director of tennis at Quail Creek Golf and Country Club in Oklahoma City. And she is also the executive director of the Missouri Valley Division of the United States Professional Tennis Association. Angie, it's great to catch up. It's been a while. How's your summer been? Hey, thanks. It's been really good, um, considering what everybody's going through right now. Well, let's talk about that, because you get this great new job as director of tennis at Quail Creek, and it's like, congratulations, you're the director of tennis at Quail Creek, and we have a pandemic. But what have you been able to sort of do this summer that maybe was a pleasant surprise to you, and maybe some programming because of what you've dealt with? that maybe you'll keep on a go forward. Yeah, it's kind of funny because what I found, and I think a lot of other pros have found, is that we have so many families that are wanting to play tennis and have started playing tennis. So I've really kind of focused a lot this summer on getting families to play together and giving them tools to play together. Uh, I think through COVID, we've actually... Um, are creating a lot of lifetime tennis players and a lot of lifetime family tennis families. Now, as I mentioned, we are talking to Andy Roddick, and I know that as much tennis as you've watched over the years, you certainly saw plenty of Andy Roddick, but of all of the tennis that you saw him play or everything that you've seen him do with his career, what kind of stands out for you, Angie? Well, I remember, I don't remember what year it was, but Andy came to Oklahoma City and played in the Oklahoma City Energy Challenge. Um, he did some imitations of other players on tour, and it was just, it was hilarious. It was fun. And so that was a really good memory, memory of Andy Roddick. Lots of, of great memories about Andy and probably not a surprise to either one of us after seeing him and some of his pressers uh, and, and how quick-witted he was. Well, and that was part of the fun, too. You never knew what he was going to say. Angie, it's so great having you on 
Tennis Across America, and this is something that we look forward to doing uh, every couple of weeks on kickserveradio.com. It's always good to get caught up with you, knowing that tennis in Oklahoma is in good hands as long as you're a part of it and with the Missouri Valley, and I hope you'll give everyone out there our best and get them listening to kickserveradio.com. If not for my sake, they'll enjoy listening to Matt Vlander and Johnny Levine for sure. We can do that. Thank you, Andy. All right, there you go, and we are back. And uh, guys, again, want to thank Andy Roddick for joining us, and of course, Matt's always thanks to you for getting us these great hookups with all these great Hall of Famers. And I'm going to pose the same question to you that I that I talked to him about, which was the Hall of Fame. And and what we really didn't get into with Andy as much as I'd like to, but I will with you is when you are a Hall of Famer. I look at it two ways you're a hall of famer for the rest of your life. And that's something that, that nobody can take away from you, but also there's the moment there's that moment where you go in and it's always nice to know that you brought your a game to the proceedings. And we talked about it with Andy and I've really felt like he certainly did. How did you feel on that stage being inducted into the hall of fame? And did you feel like you hit the mark with everything that you wanted to say when the time came? Um, no, Andy, not even close uh, in my speech. I had uh, three friends uh, that came uh, up to uh, the, couple, the couple of days, and they were all trying to go, you need to say this, and you need to thank him, and you need, so eventually I threw all the notes away, and I just spoke freely, and uh, seriously, I didn't have a very good speech, but I have to say something else. Um, you know, getting in the, inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame for a tennis player uh, depending on when that happens in your career, you might not be ready to take some kind of nomination by a committee that allows you to get into the Hall of Fame when tennis really is only about, I don't care what you think of me, and I'm going to win, uh, I'm going to beat you, and uh, there's a chair umpire, and there are lines, and there are line calls, and suddenly you have some kind of a uh, a sort of a figure skating situation where they're choosing you. So I wasn't impressed at all when I got the call first. Not at all. I'm like, who cares? The National, International Tennis Hall of Fame. I got seven majors, uh, on and on and on. Until I got there and I went through the museum the first time and I saw my picture and some of my trophies on, on the, and they d- dedicated a big wall. And I saw and I realized Rod Laver is sort of right next to you. And then, oh, there is me. And Pam Schreiber was inducted at the same time. And then it, it started hitting me. And then we went on the court and I heard my coach uh, sort of choke up when he was introducing me. Everybody starting to choke up, my, my three friends that were there. So it, it was a, such a humbling moment which is what you're talking about right then, that when I had my speech, I was kicking myself to death that I did not prepare it because I was choking. And I haven't choked up to that point. I've never really choked in my tennis career. And that was actually the first time. And uh, wow, massive moment that um, I actually can relive. And uh, I think being in the Hall of Fame is such a cool thing, uh, especially when I go up there. I've been there maybe... 10 times since I got inducted uh, and just to walk around. It's, it's such a cool place. So Johnny, you know, Andy was extremely humble about the fact that he didn't really belong in when he went in. And obviously Matt and I both got uh, to have the opportunity to disagree with him on that. Does a decade in the top 10 and one major win and three Wimbledon finals and leading the United States to a Davis cup win in 07 
lead to what he received with getting into the Hall of Fame at such a young age, in your opinion? You know, I think the Hall of Fame um, has certain standards to get in that, that might some people might question, you know, is one slam worthy of getting into the hall of fame? And that, that is a, a big question. I'm uh, Chang got in with one French open. So obviously with Roddick winning the U S open, then there's no way he's not going to get in. And then he also had the Davis cup. I think for, for Andy, um, the big thing in his career, not only did he finish, a year-end number one, which is really the pinnacle of tennis. I mean, he has a year-end number one ranking. Uh, that's a very short list, so that's a huge thing. And that, that, that's something that Chang did not have. And Andy Roddick, to me, uh, better than the U.S. Open title, better than the Davis Cup title, is the consistency in his overall career being in that top ten. That, that really is quite an amazing feat. And there's not many guys in the world except these top three guys that probably have that. I mean, nine consecutive years in the top 10 is a tremendously big accomplishment um, to go along with those others is, you know, he's, he's definitely worthy of the, of, of the hall of fame. And I'll, I'm, I'm so happy that he is in it. Matt, let me ask you this because we didn't get a chance to, to ask Andy this and Johnny and I had talked a little bit about it uh, in prepping for the show. And that was the fact that, you know, when, when Agassi and Sampras and Courier and Chang and to a degree Todd Martin and a few other Americans were sort of all in this generation, there was sort of a shared pressure of carrying the mantle of American tennis from what John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors had done. But then when it was Andy, it was just Andy. I mean, it wasn't Andy and then two or three other guys that might win a major. James Blake, great player, wasn't going to win a major. Brian brothers were going to win majors, but not in singles. So do you feel that when Andy won the U S open in Oh three, as a 21 year old, that he sort of looked around and thought, this is a lot of pressure for one guy to try to assume what American tennis fans are expecting American tennis to do on the heels of what they saw Pete, Andre, Jim and Michael Chang do. Absolutely. Andy, I think that um, yet when he presented himself Andy, with that absolute massive serve, harder than Pete Sampras. Uh, I mean, I think bigger forehand than Pete Sampras. Uh, I think that the pressure was on him. The expectations were actually really big on Andy, uh, I believe. And I think he lived up to it. I really do. I think he would have won four or five majors if he did not play in that generation because of the quality of him as a competitor. I thought he was an excellent competitor day in and day out. I thought he was an excellent competitor against Roger and Rafa and Novak. And like Andy said himself, the matchup was not good. So I'm not sure. The pressure of being the number one American as a junior and then come out and win the U.S. Open and become number one in the world. I mean, it's nearly like you have to be amazed at the fact that he kept his motivation and uh, intensity level so high for so many years after he, you know, he reached the highest you can reach in your sport. So I, I'm Andy, he's a Hall of Famer, but way more than that, uh, I think. And he's been so important for American tennis because he, again, he made it cool to be a tennis player. The way that he was sort of talking back to people and the way he was fighting and sweating and then he's serving 150 miles an hour. I mean, but he was a cool way of playing tennis and he's a cool guy. 
Okay, Johnny, I'm going to give you the last word for you because you got Tom Fontana in there breathing down your neck. And so I'm going to give you a last word about Andy Roddick. There's Fontana in the background and people that, uh, that know tennis in this country, they all know Tom Fontana, kind of an opinionated guy, great guy, but he'll tell you what he really thinks. He's an East coast guy. And he was the guy that originally introduced me to Chris Russo match, just FYI. That's how I got to know the mad dog. And actually Fontana played a little doubles with, with, uh, with the mad dog after we had him on the show. So Johnny and Tom, if you want to chime in a last word on Andy Roddick, and then you guys got to go, uh, you're not hitting the town in New York. I know that cause you're both too old for that, but, but, but some last words and then Matt's and I'll take it from there. Well, the first time I saw Roddick play was uh, at the Open against Alex Karecha. And he was a young guy with a big power. And, he, and Alex, I loved watching him play because I loved the tightness on the one-hander. But, but Roddick was, was, was just too strong and overpowered him that day. And then, we, and then later on, I saw him blow out Nadal. Right before Nadal won his first French at the U.S. Open at night, couldn't see Roddick serve. But I always admired Andy because he obviously the serve was was insane but the forehand was huge early in his career and 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 it was it was one of the biggest things the heaviest things when he first came out and then obviously as the game materialized and as the years went on a lot of guys hit the ball heavy and big like that and when he ended with Stefanki late in the career and he lost the 15 pounds and he got a little bit quicker and a little more confident he had a little resurgence there where he almost won that Wimby, really had a backhand volley to win it um, over Federer. But I respect the fact that he was top 10 for so long in his career and was so successful through the evolution of guys now being able to step up and, and handle his power and go toe-to-toe them, and he still stayed top five, top 10 the majority of his career, and he really was a great pro. All right, Matt, you want to you want to uh, kind of uh, respond to that because Tom made some interesting points, and I think you probably agree to a large extent that he did hit the ball real big early in the career, but then it did all of a sudden become a situation where he became more conservative off the ground. Was that uh, in response to the way Roger began to really disarm his game, uh, among others, I guess Nadal and and possibly Novak as well. You know, I'm not really sure. Um, I think that, you know, what I was trying to sort of get um, out of Andy was, you know, he had a huge forehand and maybe at times he, he, he waited for the ball to come to him a little bit. He ran around and hit some second serve returns with the forehand, but a little bit maybe too far behind the baseline. So we all had our thoughts about how players should play to win, but not everybody, not all of them want to play like that and they lose some intensity. So I think the fact that he carried the torch at the U.S. Open as the American that can maybe win it, I cannot imagine a a more pressure-cooked situation than to be the American who's playing a night session in the first week not against a particularly good player, and the American crowd just demands him to win in three sets and somehow light the crowd up. So, I I mean, he deserves so much respect. But you know it when you talk to him now. It's passion. You know, it's passion, and that's infectious, and, uh, and that's what he has, not just for tennis. All right, speaking of a guy who's got passion that is infectious, that is... Matt Svelander. Let's hear a little bit about what he's got going on in Haley, Idaho at Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And then when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about 
a couple of American twins who just shut it down and take a look back on an amazing doubles career, the career of the best doubles team of all time. Matt's Lander Tennis, and then we'll be back. Don't go away. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion, Matt Spielander, now owns Gravity Tennis and Fitness. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Matt's is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Matt's, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. We're joined by United States Professional Tennis Association Chief Operating Officer, Fred Biancos. Fred, 2020 has been a tough year for tennis pros, but they have an opportunity because of what's going on with USPTA and USTA to get their dues paid for. Talk us through that program. It has been a tough year, but um, in our cooperation and working with USTA, um, we're going to be able to offer free dues for members in good standing for 2021. And to be in good standing means that you have to have your dues paid up for 2020. And then to be safe play compliant, which is includes uh, the background screening to make uh, all of our pros the, the safest possible for the uh, tennis playing public. And then also be current with your education. So uh, if you can manage to do all that before October 1st, which is the deadline, then you will have free dues for the 2021 uh, calendar year. Although there won't be a live world conference in New Orleans as it was planned for September, there will be a virtual world conference. It looks like a great alternative. It looks like you guys are playing it safe and being responsible. Talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, unfortunately, we we you know we had to cancel the the live uh, conference for September, but we found a really cool platform where we can have a virtual conference. It'll be just like attending a normal conference. So it's pretty exciting stuff. We're going to have a top notch list of presenters and experts. We're planning to have fifteen sessions throughout the three days on September twenty first through the twenty third, and have it be really interactive and and a, a pretty cool experience. Some pretty good swag and some good motivation to register early. 99 bucks, 79 if you're safe play compliant, correct? Yes, correct. We have two deadlines, October 1st for the free dues to be safe play compliant, and then also uh, December 31st uh, in order to be able to 
rejoin and be a member in good standing come 2021. He's Fred Biancos. He's Chief Operating Officer of the United States Professional Tennis Association. Freddie, thanks so much for all you do, and thanks for joining us here on KickServeRadio.com today. Thanks, AZ. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. I am joined by the great Mats Vlander, two-time Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. We've had Andy Roddick on the show tonight. He was the last one to get her done. He won that U.S. Open, last American male to win a major championship back in 2003. And, of course, uh, Johnny and I were joined by our teammate, Tom Fontana, tonight, who uh, had a few words to say about what he saw from Andy Roddick. And it's always good to hear from Tom Fontana. So, Johnny, let's talk now about uh, uh, the greatest doubles team of all time. The Bryan brothers just at the end of last week announced that they were shutting it down. And I just don't think they wanted to play their last match in front of no fans. And I think if there was ever the epitome of a crowd favorite in the sport of tennis, you don't have to go very far down the list to get to the Bryan brothers as far as being pretty high on the list of tennis players that big throngs of people all over the world, particularly in the United States, particularly at the U S open loved to watch play tennis. Those guys were electric. The greatest doubles team of, of all time. And uh, you know, the Bryan brothers at 42 years old, um, I'm sure they're, they're dealing with different injuries and things like that. And uh, their motivation is, is a little different now. Um, you know, they're both married. They, you know, I think, one of the Brian brothers has got a kid on the way. The other one has three kids. So I think they have other priorities. I, I know that the passion that they have for the game is uh, immense. Two guys, really, when you think of doubles today being on the back burner, but these guys made an um, insane career out of doubles. How many slams did they have, Andy? It, was it I think 16 or, 16 six, or 17, and they yeah. won 118, 120 titles. And I think second place on that list are, are the Woodies with 60-something. So, I mean, to say that their numbers are in the stratosphere is an understatement. And, and, just, uh, and you can talk about the results forever, but the, the way they are as human beings and people – it goes beyond the tennis results and, and their dad, Wayne Bryan, I didn't know their, their mom. I was fortunate to meet Wayne and, and what a great guy he, he is. And the way those boys were raised, just really solid people, solid individuals. And, and I think it really showed. So we're going to miss them. And uh, what a, what a great career. We'll look forward to seeing them in the hall of fame for sure. Matt, let me get your take on something because when you came up, a lot of people, not a lot of people. You are you are probably the the best carbon copy of Bjorn Borg. But I think people around the world tried to emulate Borg from the standpoint of his tennis, uh, his persona. Stylistically, he was in vogue. He was a rock star, and he was a guy that you wanted to be like. And now, when you watch pro doubles, you see body language that is reminiscent of the Bryans. You see guys jumping around and high five. And after every point, you see chest bumps, you see some iteration of the Bryans in just about every doubles player that you see in pro tennis, college tennis, junior tennis, men, women across the board. Is it safe to say that the Bryan brothers carbon footprint on the sport of doubles is going to be around a while and that we see it all over the place? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's been, 
you know, a few events here and there. I remember when Andre Agassi came up and, and we all uh, thought that, well, look at that guy. He can't even volley. And that was because he was driving the volley with topspin. And we used to call that, that, well, that's not a volley. I mean, he doesn't know how to volley. So I think the Bryan brothers, the fact that they uh, uh, stood as close to the net as they decided to do, the eye formation and crossing and going everywhere all the time. Uh, yes, it's all because of them. And I think that they came in a, in a very uh, peculiar time because there was obviously the John McEnroe and Peter Fleming. And I played a bunch of doubles, but uh, we doubles, the level of professional men's doubles went kind of down the toilet for a little bit when singles players all decided to not play doubles anymore. The Sampras and the Agassi and Jim Courier uh, and that kind of generation when singles became much tougher physically and you really couldn't play doubles and do well in singles. I think it took a bit of a dip. And then the Bryan brothers came and just said, forget singles completely. And they did not try and play the old-fashioned style of doubles that John McEnroe and, and, uh, and those guys played. So you couldn't really compare a McEnroe as a doubles player with Mike or Bob Ryan because the game was completely different. And I think they took that to the next level. So I think they're the first team, I think, the first team that I would say is the best doubles team in the world because any other team – if you put a singles player in there, I bet you that's the best doubles team in the world. You put Roger Federer in there with another double specialist, that's the best team in the world. But the Bryan brothers took it to the next level. They're the greatest team, not just in wins, but in level, because they changed what doubles uh, became. Well, I certainly want to thank Bob and Mike for their friendship. They came to Denver and did an event with myself and Jeff Salzenstein and Philip Farmer in 2004. And they literally lit Denver, Colorado up like it's never been lit up before for a tennis event. Their father, Wayne Bryan, came a couple of years ago and, and, and did some great things with us with our Hall of Fame induction gala. Uh, and, and I've always had great admiration for the Bryans. And I agree that they will be missed, but they won't, they won't be gone. They're, they're still going to be around and they're still going to have something to say about what's going on in the sport of tennis. We definitely want to thank Andy Roddick for joining us tonight, Matt. And before we check out, you're going to be on the call for Eurosport for this U.S. Open. What are some of the things that you think are going to be important for tennis fans to see so that when this U.S. Open is over with, the sport of tennis can move forward from this pandemic era that it is in the midst of and trying to come out of that's going to reflect that the sport is in a good place and then things are moving towards better health from a sport perspective? Well, I think that, you know, the responsibility completely uh, suddenly lies with the players because it's all up to the players right now. You have to, as a, as a professional tennis player, you have got to go out there and you have got to give a 110% in every situation. And it's not easy to do that. So we're asking uh, these guys and these women now at, at the U.S. Open to do that. I think we'll find that some players have a hard time giving 100% when there is nobody watching. Uh, and it's a little bit of an unfair situation to the pros because they didn't sign up to do this. I know they played without a crowd as kids and maybe early in the pro career, but we didn't really sign up to to play the U.S. Open with no people watching. So um, I think that it, it kind of 
lives and dies with the players. This can be an incredibly successful U.S. Open, but it has to be a great match. It has to be great attitude because we're not going to see the New York wave in the crowd and we're not going to see Derek Jeter or any celebrity in the crowd. I mean, how are we going to keep the viewer interested by tennis, by the personality of the players? And, and now we have been talking about the, the personality in tennis. Is it, is it as, as good now as it used to be with Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe and Ilya Nastase and Andre Agassi? Well, we will find out. And uh, that's going to be the most interesting part uh, to me is to see how tennis uh, uh, survives and thrives as a TV sport because of the personality of the players. And I would add to that, that to some extent, the onus is on John McEnroe and Patrick McEnroe and Jim Courier and Mary Carrillo and Mats Wielander to give color and perspective to the proceedings. Do you feel a little bit more of a sense of pressure to be able to provide the entertainment value that will be missing by having a U.S. Open and not being played in front of a crowd? I feel privileged. I, I feel the pressure. You're correct, Andy. I think I feel the pressure. Uh, I always hope that my enthusiasm for the sport uh, inspires other people to take it up. Well, we'll find out now um, because uh, this is all about passion and it's all about uh, inspiring and uh, I'm inspired by watching the players do their absolute best. Uh, uh, and I will be um, interested to see if the best players in the world are the ones that are going to surprise me or the lower ranked players that suddenly play much better because the pressure is not on. But I mean, listen, Andy, I'm going to ask you before we go. You're an American. You look forward to the U.S. Open most probably more than any other tennis event. I look forward to the French Open, Wimbledon. I look forward to the U.S. Open because I live in America. But French Open and Wimbledon are maybe a little bit closer to my heart somehow because I grew up with Borg on grass, Borg on clay. For you, as an American, the goal and dream was to be there in New York for a night session, five-set match, crowd is full. We got everybody from from past and uh, present president of the United States in the stands. How much are you going to miss it? I mean, what are you going to be looking for and, and, and what are you going to do? It's, it's definitely not going to be the same. Nothing is the same right now. And not only are we in the midst of sports being affected by the pandemic, we are in the midst of sports being affected by social unrest. And so I think there are a lot of balls in the air and going on sports talk radio to try to make sense of it all right now, I think is 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 north of the pay grade of a sports talk radio host. So I'm I'm finding myself to be a little overwhelmed by it all. And at night I will come home and I will I will watch a little bit of tennis, but it will not feel like the US Open if I don't feel like the crowd is a participant in the outcome of these matches. It is going to be like watching nice tennis on television. I will know that it is the US Open and so in my mind I will be able to simulate the pressure that these players must be feeling and know that they are playing something that feels like a practice match, but that it's the U S open. And so I look forward to trying to fathom what is going on in the, in the minds of these players. Although to try to 
articulate what it is. I'm not sure that I'm there right now. I look forward to seeing you and those commentators that I mentioned, along with the Brad Gilberts of the world who always give plenty of color and Darren Cahill and Mary Jo Fernandez and, and Robbie Koenig and all the great, you know, uh, Mark Knowles and all these great uh, commentators. I think it's going to be on you guys to help nurse us through this process, along with, as you say, making sure that these players go out there and lay it on the line. But my sense is, is that when you're out on the court, you play your ass off. That's just all. That's just what you do. That's what you're trying to do. You don't know any other way. And maybe the level of tennis will be even higher because of the lack of distraction. So uh, it's going to be real interesting to see, but it's, it, it will be disappointing to watch a U.S. Open without the crowd involved. Andy, I think that you hit the nail on the head, I swear. I think the level, uh, it's going to be tough to understand the level without the crowd noise and the faces in the ground and the surprise on people's faces when they, something great happens. But I actually believe if you just watch it, the level has to be better because on average, the players uh, do feel the pressure from the crowd and it affects them negatively more than uh, being a positive influence. And I'm saying, as for the average tennis pro, if you took it all, there's some top players that actually love it. There's some top players that play better without it. Some top players from Scotland gets a little bit more upset when people are watching potentially. But I think the level, physically, I think the level is going to be higher because that pressure is not there from the crowd. That being said, I'll close out by saying the level that Mats Wielander played at in 1988 in his final against Yvonne Lendl had a lot to do with the crowd that, that, that put him on their back and allowed him to soar to heights he had never soared before, which to become the number one player in the world. I believe the same thing happened for Andy Roddick in 2003. want to thank him for joining us on the show and, I want to just thank all of you all for, for, for listening and, and becoming fans of kickserveradio.com. I specifically want to make sure that I don't forget to thank Benji Robbins. He is a former ATP tour director and is someone that has connected kickserveradio.com with some great partnerships. Benji, thank you very much for all of your support. We appreciate your advocacy for kickserveradio.com and it's great having you as a friend of the show. Our team consists of Johnny Levine, former two-time All-American at the University of Texas, Matt Lander, seven-time major champion and former number one in the world. He'll be on the call for Eurosport for U.S. Open. We've got lots of great guests coming up on kickserveradio.com. We've had a bunch of good ones. We've had Yvonne Lendl. We've had Jim Courier. We've had Mary Carrillo. We've had Chris Mad Dog Russo. And tonight, of course, we had Andy Roddick because he was the last one to get her done. He was the last American to win the U.S. Open. Could it possibly happen in this crazy year? in New York. Time will tell. Matt's will be on the call. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Matt. I'm Andy Zoden. We'll catch you next time on kickserveradio.com.